Well, it's been 27 days since the tragic killing of George Floyd. And in the aftermath, there's been an understandable pouring out of anger and grief, and not just at the killing itself, but at what this has exposed in Western society and in terms of racial injustice. It's as though the lid has been lifted off and what has been simmering beneath the surface has now bubbled up and bubbled over. But I don't know if you've noticed that amidst the anger and amidst the grief, there's also been a strong message of hope. Hope that this might actually catalyze real change, lasting change, such that the promises of racial equality in Western society will now be realized. But I guess as we think about that hope, there are a bunch of questions that are raised. What is it that's going to make this time different? What is the vision for a racially diverse but just and equal society? And how is that actually going to be achieved and lived out? Is it possible for it to be achieved and lived out? Well, as we seek to grapple with this today in our sermon explicitly looking at this, we're going to turn unashamedly to the Bible. Now, as we do that, it's not only that we're turning to the Bible because the Bible is our supreme authority here at church for all matters of life and death, though it is at least that. But also, even if you're a person who wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want you to see that actually the Bible has played a huge role, arguably the formative role in the civil rights movement and in the West in pursuing a racially just society. Think of William Wilberforce, for example, in the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. He got his convictions about that and came to realize the evils of the transatlantic slave trade from reading the Bible. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. He was profoundly shaped by the prophets of the Old Testament like Jeremiah and Amos and profoundly shaped by the reformed theologian Reinhold Niebuhr and the Bible's emphasis on racial justice. So wherever we're coming from today, I want us to look at what the Bible has to say as we seek to recapture and re-inhabit a vision for unity and diversity and then as we seek to see not just the vision but how we can live out this unity and diversity. So first of all, the vision for unity and diversity. One of the things I want to suggest is that it's not just enough to say I stand against racism, though that's a really important place to start. But many people for 50 or 60 years and longer have been saying that. The majority of the Western culture has been saying that. But it clearly hasn't brought about the type of racially just society that we all want. And therefore something more is needed. And I suggest that's because we've lost the original vision of what it is we're striving for. And to see this original vision, we're going to look at Romans chapter 15. The reason for that is that what is often missed with the letter of Romans is that it was written into a situation of racial injustice. In fact, in large part, the dominant theme of the letter of Romans is about addressing this situation of racial injustice between Jews and Gentiles. And Rome was a predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile culture, and the Jews um, felt that their conscience was still bound to keep the law of Moses, and therefore they were restricted in certain foods that they wouldn't eat, and also in days that they needed to observe. And the Gentiles didn't feel those restrictions. This was creating racial and ethnic tensions that, separate, that um, risked separating the church and causing a schism. Paul writes into that situation 16 chapters of some of the loftiest theology in the whole of the Bible to say to them that the gospel says you must stay together because this isn't just an incidental issue to the gospel. 
This is the very vision and mission and calling of the church. Look at verse 7 of chapter 15. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. He's urging the church in Rome not to separate into two different camps of Jews and Gentiles, not to be racially segregated. He says that would undermine the very essence of what the church is and what the gospel is trying to achieve as we're reconciled to God, we become reconciled to one another. And what is the vision that underpins this? Well, look at verse eight. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Something important to note here is that the word that is translated Gentiles here is ethne in the original. It means peoples or nations or a people group. So Paul's vision here, the vision of the gospel, that he's drawing down from no fewer than five Old Testament references, is a vision of every tribe, nation and tongue, united to God in Christ and therefore united to one another in praise to God. He's not just saying racism is wrong, though he's saying that at least, but he's saying far more profoundly that there is a vision of unity and diversity. This is the very calling the very mission of the church. This is the community that God is bringing about in heaven and on earth at the end of all things. So you've got to live this out. And if you can't get on Jews and Gentiles, if you can't live together in the same church, you're undermining this calling, this mission. A few points for us to draw out from this, one for church and then one for culture. First of all, for church. Uh, ten years ago um, now, Mark and I were both at Theological College, and this was probably the main issue we were grappling with at the time. We had come ourselves from churches that we're hugely grateful for, um, where we'd been faithfully taught the gospel, but it had largely been in the context of a predominantly homogenous white culture. And the prevailing model for mission at that time, and probably still in the church today, is something called the homogenous unit principle. Basically, said as a technical theological term to say people like me are most effective at reaching people like me. But as we read the New Testament, <clears throat> we saw a very different picture. Um, if you want some bedtime reading, I'm sure you could ask Mark for his essay on this, where he argued that actually heterogeneous churches are not just a nice to have, but are essential for the vision and the calling of the church. Because this is the vision, a vision of people who are united, but diverse, united in Christ, but from every tribe, nation and tongue. And this was what propelled us forward to decide to plant a church with the vision of being a united and diverse community inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ. I remember back now, 10 years ago, when we started thinking about doing this church plant and we spoke to people, lots of people said to us, it can't really be done. Um, having a diverse church from different ethnicities, it can't really be done. You need to pick a predominant um, group you're after and go after that. But we were foolhardy enough to say, well, even if it can't be done, we'll have a go and we'll learn lots of mistakes along the way. 
Now, please hear me. I'm not saying we're right and everybody else is wrong, nor am I saying at all that we've got everything right at Inspire St. James. We know we're on a journey, that we've made mistakes along the way. We're not where we want to be right now. We're not as diverse in our staff team as we would want to be, but we're pursuing it. But why have we got this vision of being united and diverse, inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, it's not really our vision. We believe it's this vision in Romans 15. It's scripture's vision. And this is the vision that the church, we believe, needs to recapture. Merely saying we stand against racism is not enough. Do we have a positive vision for unity and diversity that will be a compelling counterculture that the world watches and says, that is remarkable. What is it about them? We need that. We want that. This is the beautiful vision of the gospel. Secondly, if that's for the church, then for the culture. I've been reading a brilliant book called A Stone of Hope from David Chappell, um, from the um, popular phrase that Martin Luther King used in his I Have a Dream speech, out of a mountain of despair, a stone of hope. And David Chappell argues with compelling evidence in that book that it was the Bible's vision, uh, the vision of the prophets like Jeremiah that profoundly shaped and influenced not just Martin Luther King, but some of the major proponents of the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. His point is, is that if you were to ask Martin Luther King what it is that his vision was, he wouldn't have said that his vision was for every human being to be able to realize their potential and to be free from constraints. That's a secular humanist vision. You would have said, let justice roll down like a mighty stream, Amos 5, 24. That is because Martin Luther King Jr. framed the whole vision of the civil rights movement, a vision that captured people and drove things forward with major advances, you know, in terms of scripture's vision, unity and diversity. And therefore, I suggest that that's the vision that we need to recapture today. And how tragic, therefore, when the church is silent on that vision and is not positioned embodying that vision to have a prophetic witness to our culture. Because today there are competing visions out there. Let me give you two. First of all, there's cosmopolitanism. Polis, people, cosmo, world. It's um, saying that we are all people of the world. And ultimately this um, pushes down racial and ethnic distinctions and says that there really is no such thing as racial and ethnic distinctions at essence. We are all just people of the world. Now, this is behind the view that is sometimes wrongly, but I think people well-intentioned articulate saying, look, there's no such thing as black Christians or white Christians. There are just Christians. I even heard, um, shockingly, of um, a pastor at his church, um, a white woman said to a black lady, you know, when I look at you, I don't see you as black anymore. I just see you as one of us. Now, no doubt she was well-intentioned, but what an awful thing to say. Imagine if a man said to a woman, you know, when I look at you, I don't see you as a woman. I just see you as one of us. I mean, that'd be shocking. The point is that gender and race is not incidental to who we are as human beings. It's an essential part of who we are. Now, there's a danger of elevating it too high and making it ultimate, turning it into an idol. But there's also a danger of pushing it down so low that we say there's no difference at all. That's cosmopolitanism if we're not careful. Separately though, there's another competing vision which is segregationism. And this was again very much part of a counter movement within the civil rights movement that was um, advocating to keep people separate. 
And whilst it's not often said out loud today, it does drive a lot of behaviour. Functionally speaking, segregationism is at play. So you see you have churches, for example, where there are networks of churches that are just dominated by one ethnicity, whether white or black. You have conferences which are run where, you know, in the church where there's no ethnic diversity shown on the podium. Over years, just one monochrome um, ethnicity dominates that subculture. You have churches that are planted and you know, run which are inaccessible to people who are different from the dominant culture. This is, functionally speaking, segregationism. But the biblical vision is different. It's unity and diversity. It's people united to God in Christ and therefore united to one another. And it's a beautiful vision. There's something profoundly human about it because I put it to you, we're never better as human beings than when we're stretching for the sake of the other. Because when we do that, when we live in community with people who are different to us, they challenge our blind spots. It forces me to grow. I become a better person for it. And therefore all enriched by one another. It's a beautiful vision, a diverse but united community. This is the Bible's vision. Well, that's the vision and I've deliberately spent time on it, unpacking it. Now let's see how we live this out. One of the big questions, how do we live out unity and diversity? And Paul um, tells us this in chapter 15, verses one to three. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. What is important to note is that in these verses, Paul frames the problem in terms of power dynamics. He calls some strong and some weak. Now, bear in mind, he's talking about a situation here where Jews, um, because of their restrictions on their conscience, haven't realized the full freedom that they can have in Christ. And so Jewish believers are not eating certain foods and wanting to observe certain ceremonial days. And Paul calls them a weak, um, not as a term of denigration, not a moral term. And unfortunately, that translation in verse one of failings of the weak actually just means weaknesses of the weak in the original. He's just saying there's a, a cultural weakness there. And he says that's because the Gentiles, who are the majority culture in a city like Rome, have the freedom of conscience not to be restricted in what they eat and not to be forced to observe certain days. So that gives them a cultural power, if you like. Now, notice he doesn't make a value judgment about having the power. He just calls it power or weakness. But what's important is what he says you should do with the power. Verse 2, each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Now, this was radically countercultural at the time and still is today. Paul was writing into an honor culture. And in an honor culture and a shame, honor shame culture, if you had power, it was, it, it conferred on you honor, status. And that honor status affected and was a kind of blessing, as it were, to your family, to your clan, to your tribe. You know, you honored them by the fact that you were honored. But if you reach down to those who were lower in the pecking order, those who were weaker, then you would become dishonored by association. So it was a kind of zero sum game. And that was shown up in what the ancient culture used to call people who had no power, who were at the bottom of the social strata. They were called unfortunates. 
because the fortunes, the world, the cosmos had decided that they weren't worthy of honor. So you would never reach down to them because that would be to taint yourself and to dishonor yourself and to be tainted by shame that they had from being low down. Well, we've reacted against that and so we live in an individualistic culture today, which is not about honor and shame so much as it is about individual merit. And in our culture, if you have power, the assumption is you've got that by your hard work, by your merit, you've earned it, it's yours. And what do you do with it? Well, you use it to advance your own cause for self-actualization, for self-fulfillment. And similarly, we wouldn't reach down to people who don't have power because if they want power, they have to do it the individualistic way, get it for themselves, earn it for themselves. It's not a free handout. And what do we call people in, with a kind of turn of phrase that's pretty unpleasant, who are right at the bottom of the social ladder, both sides of the Atlantic? We call them losers, you know, because the idea is they can't get the power, that's their problem, it's not my problem. Again, do you see how power is framed in a kind of zero-sum game and you don't give it to others? Why would you do that? And then there's a third culture that is kicking back against this, and it's the victim culture that's become particularly prominent in the last uh, five to ten years or so. And the victim culture narrative is a complete inversion of the honor-shame culture. It sees it in terms of honor and shame, but the person who is to be honored in society is the person who is the biggest victim. It completely inverts it. It says if you are the person who's been oppressed and held down, then actually you're to be honored and raised up. And what are you to do now with the power that you get from being raised up as a victim? Use it to tear down the instruments of oppression. Now, this has completely rewritten many of our narratives. Think of the way, for example, you take the archetypal, the typical privileged white male, James Bond. And now James Bond has a victim narrative, which is quite surprising for someone who was educated at Cambridge University and is part of the British Secret Service and seems to have endless money and endless resources and does whatever he likes. But we've turned him in the recent um, installment of the James Bond franchise into a victim as we hear his backstory that actually he's an orphan who was rejected, and now he is working outside of the system trying to tear down, with his particular set of skills, the instruments of oppression. So James Bond has become a victim because that's the only way we can celebrate him. He's a hero because he's a victim. But here's the thing, even in a victim culture, once you get power, you don't use it for the sake of others. You use it to tear down those who are oppressing you and who are above you. So whether it's an honor culture, or an individualistic culture, or a victim culture, all those cultures view power as a zero-sum game where those who have it cling on to it and use it for their own ends and don't give it away to others. But the gospel shows us how we can be united and diverse because verse two, each of us should please our neighbors, use our power for their good to build them up. And when Paul says here, our neighbors, it's impossible not to think about how Jesus responds to the question, who is your neighbor? When he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, an ethnically different other disempowered person, Jesus says, that's your neighbor. And therefore, a Good Samaritan like that, he challenges us all by using his power to help someone in great need. Verse one, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, the weaknesses of the weak, not to please ourselves. This is radically counter-cultural. This is the way to have a united and diverse community. 
three things to apply this to us. First, this must mean that we are in the lives of those who are different to us. Paul says in verse 7, accept one another, but you can't accept people who are different to you if you don't know people who are different to you. He says, bear with one another, but you can't bear with one another who are different to you unless you know people who are different to you. So the first step is to, to form meaningful relationships with people who are different to us. Now that should be happening in the church and in our church. Can I encourage you to spend time with people who are different to you? Get to know them, love them, serve them, form meaningful long-term relationships with them. There'll be no better way to actually start to heal racial divide than by meaningful relationships. First of all, get to know people different to you in meaningful relationships. Secondly, the word in verse one translated bear with actually would be better translated bear up or to bear the burdens of. It's a picture of knowing someone else's burdens and using your strength to help them with it, to lift them up. Now, the only way you can bear someone else's burdens is if you actually know what their burdens are. So in those contexts of meaningful relationships with people who are different to us, we actually really need to spend time listening to them. It's been a good thing. There's been a lot of reading of books on race and the problems about race. It's a shame in some sense that it took events like we've um, had over the last uh, few weeks to catalyze it, but at least it's happening now. But it needs to be part of our ongoing thoughtful reflection, reading, listening to people, understanding the burdens that others bear in society so we can bear those burdens ourselves and help them with them. That's the second step. Thirdly, and importantly, do you notice how Paul does address both sides of the power dynamic, if you like? Verse one, he does say, we who are strong ought to, that's a moral obligation to use our power for the sake of those who are weak than us, to bear them up, to bear with them and to lift them up. But he also says, verse two, each of us should please our neighbors for their good. It's tempting in a situation like this to be so on the back foot that the people with power of course, doing self-reflection, and rightly so, but that we would almost not pastor people who are in the weaker position. But Paul says, whether weak or strong, each of us should use whatever power we have to please our neighbors, not to please ourselves. Part of the danger with the victim culture and the victim narrative is that the person who has legitimately and awfully been oppressed and has been made a victim and therefore probably rightly is angry about that injustice, suddenly gets power. And when you ally um, anger at injustice with sudden power, that usually leads to destruction. And so there's normally then a desire to tear down the institutions or the systems of oppression, for example. And that can be very destructive. And all that does is further polarize and divide and leads to a cycle of people using power to push back and we end up with a divided society. And that's what is happening in many senses now. So how is there gonna be healing? Well, if someone is a victim and has genuinely experienced racial injustice, for example, what do they do with that? Look, I mean, what do I know? But I know from scripture that it says what the person needs to do with that is to be very careful to use the voice you might now have as a victim to not tear down things, but to build others up. Maybe better to put it like this. If something needs to be dismantled because it's an institution of oppression, or someone does need to be challenged because they have acted unjustly, then do that, of course, but do it carefully. 
Do it from a place of love, only seeking to bring someone down to humble them so they might be built up again and restored. You're not just seeking to tear them down. This is the gospel dynamic. Using our power for the sake of others, not for our own ends. Well, you say that's a, a high and lofty goal, but how on earth can we do that? Well, look at verse three. Only when we realize that even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. The power to do this comes from realizing what Christ has done for each and every one of us. Christ did not use his power. He had all power on heaven and earth. He did not use it for himself to advance his own agenda at the sake of others. He didn't use it to come and oppress. But what did he do with it? He went to the cross. And at the cross, he gave up all his power. He was insulted. He was mocked. He was spat upon. He was treated like a common criminal. He was scorned by the creatures that he created, by people he came to save. He was derided. And he gave all of his power up on the cross, ultimately being rejected by his Father in heaven for all of the ways that the sinful human heart distorts the God-given gift of power, whatever it is that we have, and use it for our selfish ends rather than for the sake of my neighbor and for the other. He died so that we might be forgiven for that and that we might be held in high esteem by our Father in heaven as children of God, united to him and united to one another. Christ was cosmically dishonored on the cross so that we might be honored. Christ gave up all his power on the cross so that we might be restored and called children of the Most High. Jesus Christ became the ultimate victim on the cross so that he might serve us and build us up. And when we get that, when we get all that we have in Christ, that he's restored us, that he's elevated us, that he's honored us in a cosmic sense, then it means that we don't need to use the thin power dynamics of this world for our own ends, but we can say, I can give up my power now for the sake of others. I will use it to build others up because that's what Christ has done for me. And because of who I am in Christ, I can be secure and I can serve others. He crossed every divide for me, so I will cross over the room for the sake of someone else. He cared enough to know about me and my predicament, so therefore I will take the time to get to know others in their predicament so that I might use whatever I've got to serve them. He stretched on the cross for me to draw together me to God and us all in one community. So I will stretch in church and in community to draw others in and to serve them. That's the vision of the gospel. No, Martin Luther King Jr. was starkly realistic about the evils of racism, about the mountain of despair that he faced in his own day, but he clinged on to that stone of hope in the gospel that God in Jesus Christ has done something and by his spirit in our day can do something because he had a realistic hope of the gospel. So do we, so let's live it out and let's be different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the gospel, a gospel which um, speaks into this situation we're facing today, a gospel that as we are united 
to you through the Lord Jesus Christ so we become part of your great work of what you're doing, bringing together people of every tribe, nation and tongue, united in Christ, different, diverse, but with a radical unity. May we live that calling and that mission out. May it grip our hearts and may it transform us and help us to use whatever we've got, our power, for the sake of others, not for our own good, but to build others up that there might be healing and that there might be unity. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.